Hello and welcome to Macrobytes, the economics and politics podcast from Aberdeen. My name is Paul Diggle, Chief Economist at Aberdeen. And I'm Luke Bartholomew, Senior Economist at Aberdeen. And today we are talking about interest rates and bond yields. So the sell-off in global government bond markets has gathered pace over recent months. US Treasury, uh, 10-year Treasury yields crossed 5% at one point. But what has been driving this and what does it mean for central banks and the economy? So we're joined by Aberdeen's Deputy Chief Economist and US macro expert, James McCann, to talk about all this. Welcome, James. Thank you for having me. So let's start with a bit of market context then, James. So what have bond yields done over the past few months? What have curves done, equities, the dollar. Why don't we lay out the market uh, background here? Absolutely. Let's let's start there. And I think it's it's maybe useful to talk about that that 10-year US Treasury poll, which which really forms the bedrock of the US financial system and arguably the bedrock of the global financial system too. If we cast our minds back to the summer, effectively, that was bumping around, but running around a rate of of 3.75%. And that already represented quite a significant adjustment over recent years as the interest rate structure had adjusted following the the post-pandemic acceleration in inflation. And as you mentioned, we had seen that 10-year rate over recent sessions spike to above 5%. It's trading a little bit below there now, but certainly quite a significant sell-off in in the 10-year Treasury over recent weeks and months. We've seen some adjustment in the shorter end of the yield curve too, but by notably less. And that means that if we think about the yield curve, which is essentially the difference between short-term and long-term borrowing costs, Back in the summer, that had been showing short-term rates relatively high, and that reflects the high federal funds rate at present and the expectation that Fed would need to keep that high over the next few months and years maybe to, to eke inflation out of the system, but an expectation that interest rates would fall away further forward as some form of rate normalization kicked in. Now that yield curve is showing a flatter profile for interest rates. So essentially what we've got embedded in the US yield curve is a rate structure that shows interest rates higher for longer. And that dynamic's been quite a painful one to absorb for markets. So if we look at, at credit spreads, the you know additional costs that companies pay on their on their debt issuance, you know for the best quality companies, investment grade, those spreads have risen by around twenty basis points or so. That's on top of the existing increase in U.S. government bond bond rates. For the riskier companies, high yield companies, they're being charged an extra 80 basis points. Again, that's on top of that rise in the US Treasury rate. So, you know, all in all, close to a 200 basis point increase in borrowing costs. You know, through that period, equities have fallen by around 10% or so. The US dollar is up around 4%. If we aggregate these, these signals, we can do that through things called financial conditions indices, which look across a wide range of, of financial market signals. We see that they're close to their peak that they increased to in, in late 2022. And our financial stress index, which again tries to incorporate aspects of stress seeping through the financial system, has started to spike again. So it's been quite a traumatic uh, dynamic to absorb into markets. And certainly we're seeing it ripple through all associated prices. I want to introduce here a crucial decomposition of bond yields, which is um, essentially made up of two components, expectations about future policy interest rates over both cyclical but also long-term structural horizons, 
know, we've done previous podcasts talking about our star where policy rates may head into the long term. So that's one component of what drives bond yields. But there's this other second component, which is the term premium. It's the residual, the part of a bond yield that can't be explained by policy interest rate expectations. It's generally thought of as compensating investors for holding bonds, particularly long dated bonds, as opposed to holding, say, a series of short dated bonds. It's the risk premium or compensation for, for bond risk that investors demand. And this distinction is important because the latest leg of the Treasury market sell-off that you were describing, James, over the past couple of months has actually been primarily driven by changes to the term premium as opposed to the earlier sell-off earlier in the summer, which was driven by changing expectations of central bank policy path and, and higher for longer. And that this technical, possibly a little bit esoteric distinction it matters because then it helps us think clearly about the drivers of the bond market sell-off and how the Fed and other central banks will ultimately think about it. And it's worth saying, Paul, that at least for some market analysts, the idea of the term premium is something that they're quite sceptical of as an analytical category. It's not the kind of thing that can be directly observed in the way that you defined it there. There's this sense that it's almost a definition by residual, which in other contexts we sometimes refer to as the measure of our ignorance as much uh, as anything else. And it does often depend on the particular modelling strategies that you use and the way in which you try to back out expectations of where policy rates will go to. Uh, Those kind of assumptions are critical to sort of forming a view on how the term premium has moved. But I think that kind of scepticism can be overdone because there are things that you can reasonably think of as affecting the price of bonds or the yield on on bonds that don't necessarily work through at least in first order expectations of policy interest rates and the kind of things i'm thinking of would be for example one just sort of the uncertainty around that policy path Uh, it makes sense that if this is the compensation that investors demand to hold a long-term bond rather than a series of short-term bonds, well, perhaps if they're more uncertain as to how interest rates will go over that long period, they'll demand more compensation for that. And I think the ongoing debates that we've been having on this podcast and market participants are having everywhere about the outlook for the US economy, whether there's going to be a hard landing, soft landing, mild recession, whatever it might be, that kind of debate is reflective of the degree of uncertainty at the moment that it does seem unusually high. Uh, Another factor would be things like government issuance of bonds. And, you know, there are issues with using very simplistic demand and supply diagrams in this way when thinking about bond prices. But essentially, you can think of government issuance as supply of bonds to the market and all else equal. We tend to think of increased supply pushing down on price and therefore up on yields in this context. Now, government issuance wasn't a particularly big deal in the period after the financial crisis, well, because demand for government bonds was also very high as well, in part because there was this sort of sense that there was a scarcity of of risk-free assets. And so high demand for bonds against that high supply uh, meant that the term premium could keep relatively low. But without that demand for safe assets, then supply from governments becomes more important And then the other big source of demand, of course, was central banks buying these bonds through quantitative 
easing and that is also something that's changed as well with central banks now in fact selling bonds from their balance sheet through the process of quantitative tightening now typically we tend to emphasize more the impact of qe through other channels but i, I do think that it does have an important effect uh, on the margin that they are this price insensitive buyer and if they're no longer there then presumably that is less demand and all else equal prices should be lower uh, the fourth thing to think about would be and this is a little bit more esoteric but the likelihood of the economy hitting the the effective lower bound in interest rates and so as interest rates have increased over the last couple of years then perhaps the likelihood of interest rates hitting zero again when a shock comes along has also decreased and it's precisely when interest rates are at the lower bound that you get quantitative easing so to the extent to which qe has pushed down on yields the fact that it's becoming less likely because the lower bound is less likely that should also push up on the term premium and finally also quite esoterically there's this idea that bonds are perhaps becoming a less good diversifier in a portfolio with equities just because of the changing structure of the economy and the kind of shocks it's going to face. So a lot of explanations there, Luke, of why term premium could be rising. Let's dive in to a couple of them in a bit more detail. In particular, James, why has, well, just how big is the US fiscal deficit? Why has it been so large? And what are the problems macroeconomically, politically, with having very large US fiscal deficit. The deficit is unusually large, especially for this stage of, of the cycle. So if we try and adjust, there have been a one or two funnies going on with, with student debt relief, which have distorted some of the headlines. If we take those into account, our best calculation is the US was running a deficit around 7.5% of GDP in fiscal year 2023. That represents a pretty significant widening from, from 2022. Driving that seems to be, you know, particularly sharp and unusual drop in, in receipts. That could be because 2022 receipts were really high as people booked capital gains on, on a whole bunch of assets following the, the post pandemic, you know, appreciation and, and strong asset market performance. It also could be reflecting some of the timings around tax payments. So there are late payments coming in in, in some states. So it's possible that you know that that deficit of seven and a half percent slightly overstates where where the underlying deficit is, but still it's it's pretty concerning, especially given that we're an economy pretty close to or at what we would consider full employment, and it it speaks to there being a permanent hole in the U.S. public finances where revenues and receipts just just won't match. You know we call that a structural deficit, and it's it's something that sits there regardless of the position of the business cycle. The IMF's current estimate for the US structural deficit is actually larger at close to 8 to 9% of GDP. And the worrying thing, I guess, for, for the US is we are in relatively good times at the moment, at least with regards to the strength of the economy in the short term and, and, and the labour market dynamic. Should the US go into a recession, let's imagine next year as we're currently forecasting, then as the automatic stabilizers kick in, then that deficit would naturally widen. So you know, I guess the market could be looking at this dynamic and saying it's not impossible if the US comes off the rails that that deficit really, really spikes quite significantly. And then the second issue is the US has a lot of existing debt and it's having to refinance that at higher prevailing interest rates. You know, the average maturity of the US Treasury market's not that long. It's about six years. That compares to 
14 in the UK. And that means the US Treasury having to come back more frequently to, to refinance, and it's doing so now at painfully high interest rates. So when we look at just the interest costs on, on, on financing the US current deficit, it's possible that they spike to around 3.5% of, of GDP next year. So that's a pretty decent component probably of that structural deficit story and one that's probably getting getting worse too. So this is not to be super alarmist and say, oh, the US the US is under threat from bond vigilantes and we'll see you know ever rising US interest rates as people question debt sustainability. But it's certainly certainly the case that the US issuance schedule, they're going to have to issue a lot of paper over over coming years. And you know, when markets look at that and maybe the lack of a credible fiscal plan, you know, dysfunction on Capitol Hill you know, perhaps some of the appetite to, to take that is is slightly slightly less willing. So, you know, maybe that's one of the, the dynamics which is which is factoring in here, as Luke said, probably a few things going on, but but certainly that's that's not a helpful backdrop for, for fixed income markets. Yeah, that's a very good point you make, James. It's not default risk per se that investors are worrying about in the US, but it's it's or anything other than a technical default that could accompany a debt ceiling standoff, but it's worries about the size of issuance, the potential inflationary consequences as well of running large deficits at a time of being at or beyond full employment. Um, Luke, why don't we expand on one of the other drivers of higher term premium, lower bond prices that you laid out there, which is the balance of demand and supply shocks hitting the economy. Why would more supply shocks mean higher term premium? And why do we think that balance of shocks is shifting? Sure. So the idea is, in a standard way of thinking about how you construct a portfolio, bonds and equities are natural complements to each other, because when equities do well, bonds tend to do poorly, uh, and vice versa. And that's a very nice property for a diversified portfolio. And the reason people think about them working in that way is that when the economy is hit by a demand shock, it tends to push growth and inflation in the same direction. So a positive demand shock pushes up on growth and that higher growth against capacity constraints tends to push up on inflation. And so in that case, the stronger growth tends to help equities. But at the same time, the stronger inflation also tends to mean the interest rates go up and that's bad for bonds. So they're moving in opposite directions. And then the logic runs in reverse with a negative demand shock. So it's bad for growth and that's bad for equities. But at the same time, inflation's falling and so interest rates tend to fall. And so the bond part of your portfolio performs very well. The problem is in a supply shock driven environment, growth and inflation move in opposite directions. So a positive supply shock pushes up on growth, but also down on inflation because there's more capacity to take um, that stronger growth. And that means that you then don't get this nice correlation structure between uh, bonds and equities because in this environment of a negative supply side shock that we're seeing at the moment in particular, well, you get poor growth, but you also get high inflation, which pushes interest rates up. So your equities perform poorly because of the poor growth, but your bonds perform poorly as well because of the higher inflation, meaning interest rates go up and therefore prices down, as you say, Paul. And so supply side shocks do not bring out that nice diversification quality within a portfolio. So in a world where you tend to be 
uh, only getting or it's dominated by demand shocks, that diversification works very well. And I think that broadly describes the environment during the so-called great moderation from maybe the 90s, including to some extent the post-financial crisis period uh, as well. But since the pandemic, it does feel like we're moving into a world where the the so-called data generating process is, is one which is churning out more supply side shocks and in particular more negative supply side shocks. So one thinks of things like, well, the pandemic itself, but also geopolitical uncertainty, the sense of a rising global polarization and also climate change as well. All of these things you would tend to think would lead to a world that is more characterized by supply side shocks and negative supply side shocks at that. And therefore you don't get that portfolio diversification benefit from holding bonds and that therefore makes them less attractive to investors so all else equal they'll pay less for them which is another way of saying the term premium should be higher and then this deep dive on term premium this matters because the drivers of term premium as opposed to the drivers of higher policy interest rates are different and may persist or fade over time in different ways. So we did a previous episode on the equilibrium real policy interest rate and explained why that is high right now in the post-pandemic environment, but we think there are good reasons to think that the long-term equilibrium policy rate is still fairly low. Uh, The next big moves in central bank rates is probably downwards. On the other hand, these drivers of higher term premia deficits and issuance as James has been talking about the balance of demand and supply shocks as you mentioned there Luke there could well be reasons to think that those actually are very persistent and we could be in a higher for longer world vis-a-vis term premium even if we aren't necessarily in that world for policy interest rates. James how does the Fed think about all this we've had some messaging from Fed officials about the exogenous tightening in financial conditions represented by higher term premium. How is that playing into their thinking and policy rate decisions? I mean, this is very important for, for the Fed. They're watching it very closely. And I think we've had, you know, a whole host of Fed speakers come out and say very explicitly that they're factoring this into their to their decision making. You know, and I think that dynamic between the rise in, in interest rates, which is driven by term premium versus a rise in interest rates, which is driven by you know, changing fundamentals, be it around the neutral rate or around inflation outlook, etc. I think that's a really, a really you know, important dynamic that they're following. Certainly, if the outlook, if, if, if the rate structure is increasing because people are becoming more optimistic on the long-term growth, the long-term inflation, the long-term interest rate outlook, then I think that's something that the Fed could could absorb and maybe it wouldn't change its underlying policy dynamics as concretely. But if it's a rise in interest rates driven by some you know, market technicalities around these term premia, be it the issuance schedule, be it uh, changing correlations between, between different asset class returns, be it just fundamental uncertainty over the interest rate outlook, then I think they see that you know, as a as an effective tightening in policy, which isn't warranted by the domestic fundamentals. And so it's one that they need to take carefully into account when they set their own policy. And actually, the message coming from, from Chair Powell and a, a whole host of Fed speakers has been that, you know, this adjustment really has done a, a bunch of the work for us. Um, I think, you know, certainly the Fed were signaling that they would 
hike once more this year i think that was likely to be a pretty a pretty close call i think seeing the adjustments in market interest rates and obviously the tightening of policy that 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 generates and the nature of that tightening in policy the message we're getting at the moment is that that's that's enough we'll take that tightening in policy and we'll, we'll bank it and say that that's sufficient for the time being so then finally james on this idea of doing some of the work for us i mean how much of an impact should we think that this tightening in financial conditions is going to have on the US economy? And in particular, one distinction that I'm interested in is sort of the standard ways in which tighter financial conditions, higher interest rates affects interest rate sensitive sectors of the economy. And then separate to that, the impact on financial stress. So the idea that maybe there's some breaking points or some non-linearities in a very rapid rise in interest rates or interest rates rising beyond a critical point that causes some sort of breaking exposures of vulnerability. Arguably, that was the case with the banking sector issues earlier this year. So uh, just in terms of, of those two impacts, how do we think about the way in which this is weighing on US growth? I think that's a neat, a neat way to, to separate it and come at this question. You know, absolutely, if we, we take the first aspect, just that you know, almost vanilla-ish tightening in, in longer-term interest rates, that's an effective you know, tightening in policy, tightening in you know, the, the cost availability of, of money. There are a whole bunch of ways that, that we can think about this or, or model this. The Fed itself has its own financial conditions index, which then it maps on to, to growth implications. And given that financial conditions tighten to similar rates, uh, to similar levels as we saw late last year, you know, back then the Fed's models were telling us that that was consistent with a drag of around one to two percentage points of GDP over a one-year horizon. So, you know, it's very clear that that financial conditions at these levels will feed into the economy. You know, probably short first in the interest rate sensitive sectors. Certainly, the housing market looks under pressure again from an eight percent mortgage rate. Um, aspects of that market remain frozen as anyone who's fixed is just completely refusing to, to move on to those prohibitive rates. We think it will show up in aspects of capital spending. We know that new issuance has been very weak by by corporate um, by, by corporates on the debt side. We know that CNI lending has been very, very weak. We probably expect that to continue to show up as well or, or show up perhaps more on household balance sheets. We're seeing household interest payments as a share of income rise quite quickly now and they're above where they were in late 2019 as well. So you know, these classic monetary transmission mechanisms are coming through the economy and the adjustment in the entire rate structure should should amplify them. You know, I think that the point around financial stress, we have our own financial stress index that started to, to spike again. We tend to find that that, you know, hits growth through those same financial conditions channels as, as we've just discussed in, in the Fed modeling work. In terms of cracking points, they can be hard to spot ahead of times. It's actually one of the questions that we discussed with our, our US equity and credit colleagues at a recent a recent get together where we got into this issue. You know, I think it's important to monitor the banking system very closely. We know that you know aspects of deposit flight in this high interest rate environment, banks holding fixed income securities, which you know have potentially large losses on them, that can be quite a toxic combination. So certainly watching individual banks that might be exposed through some of those channels in terms of broader, you know, outside of that regional banking complex that, that flared up back in March. You're looking closely at, at, at those who might be holding fixed income portfolios, um, so life insurance sectors, for instance, one under scrutiny, not seeing systemic issues. 
and companies as well having to refinance onto onto much higher interest rates are obviously under under close scrutiny for our, for our credit our credit colleagues you know some of the step ups from those rates that you're able to achieve in 2020 2021 are really significant and you know with profit growth starting to decline it's possible that that actually it becomes increasingly difficult to afford that debt again we're not seeing signs of of systemic stress there but certainly want to be careful and and you know watching individual companies quite closely so you know at the moment not seeing signs of a systemic crack but i think monitoring with with you know real caution given the the scale and the speed of the increase in market rates and and the risk potentially that you know we're not at the end of it it might also be worth adding that whilst our conversation has of course focused on the US that this financial stress is also cropping up internationally as well so the rising bond yields globally have been putting pressure on the likes of the Bank of Japan and its yield curve control policy where higher interest rates globally tends to push up those Japanese bond yields and the Bank of Japan is finding itself uh, gradually having to step away from yield curve control policy otherwise it's putting huge amounts of downward pressure on the yen and similarly in the eurozone higher interest rates are pushing up the financing costs of the likes of italian government debt and the european central bank finds itself in a relatively difficult position handling issues like that partly because you know it has its own inflation issues that it wants to keep monetary policy tight for but also it's difficult for it to be seen to be involved in financing of government deficit particularly in in countries where there are some questions about the way in which budgetary policies are being managed but anyway that is probably all that we have time for this week so as ever please do let me ask you to uh, subscribe and review us on your podcast platform of choice and then all that remains is for me to thank james for joining us today and his excellent insights and to thank you all for listening so Thanks very much and speak again soon. This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for information purposes only and should not be considered as an offer, investment, recommendation or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and investors may get back less than the amount invested. Past performance is not a guide to future returns, return projections or estimates and provide no guarantee of future results.